I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hello and welcome to Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Dr Kat Jarman and I'm very happy that you've joined me today. Did you know that before England's main patron saint became St George of her dragon slaying fame, we actually had several others as well. And the most famous of them all was probably St Edmund the Martyr. Edmund was an early medieval king best known for his gruesome death at the hands of invading Vikings. And later, a cult sprung up around him, rather bizarrely because he was venerated by the descendants of those very Scandinavians who caused his martyrdom in the first place. And for several centuries, Edmund's bones have been lost. But now there's a possibility that we may have a pretty convincing clue as to where they might be. They could be hiding under a tennis court in Suffolk. So to find out more about Edmund and the search for his remains, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Francis Young to the Gone Medieval podcast. Francis is a historian and a very prolific author who got his PhD in history from the University of Cambridge, and he's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. And he now teaches at the University of Oxford Department of Continuing Education. And I can very highly recommend Francis's book about this very subject. It's called Edmund in Search of England's Lost King. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So I was hoping just to start us out, Francis, could you begin by sort of setting the scene for us a little bit? So where we are in the world and, and what the political situation was in the ninth century in England? So where we are is the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of East Anglia. And that's a fairly small kingdom in the east of England. The very furthest east part of England that sticks out into the North Sea, which today is Norfolk, Suffolk, and parts of Cambridgeshire. And that small kingdom was ruled over by a man called Edmund. He was a member of a dynasty known as the Wuffings, who took their name from one of the early uh, Germanic invaders, whose name meant something like Little Wolf, so they're the people of the Little Wolf. And it's a prosperous kingdom. It's got a large trading emporium at a place called Gipperswick. Today is what is known as Ipswich. There are a number of significant monastic sites, very holy sites in that kingdom, possibly at Dunwich, for example, which has now been lost to the sea, possibly at a town called Beodrickswith, which is now known as Barry St Edmunds. It's a, a good place to be alive, really, compared to a lot of places in the world in the middle of the ninth century. But then something changes, doesn't it, in the 860s, because we have the arrival on the scene of what becomes known as the Great Heathen Army, as we know from historical record. And that has some quite serious implications for the East Anglians. So tell us about Edmund, then, who was the king, and, and what happened to him when the Great Army arrived? 
We don't know a great deal about the historical Edmund. We know that we have coins with his name on, which gives us a, a clue that he probably becomes king around the middle of the 850s. And so he's ruling for around about 10 years by 865, when we have the arrival of the great heathen army. And they come by ship to the East Anglian coast. We don't know exactly where they land, but probably the coast of what's now Suffolk. And they do what they usually do in this kind of situation. They demand money with menaces. And essentially, they require protection money from Edmund Danegeld, which will allow them to set up a base in his kingdom, making a kind of temporary alliance. And Edmund agrees to this, which, again, was quite normal for the time that kings, their first instinct would be to make some sort of settlement of this kind rather than to fight. And the exchange is essentially that the, the Vikings, the great heathen army, won't attack his kingdom, provided that Edmund supplies them with horses. And so he does that, gives them horses, allows them to set up a camp at Thetford on the border between Norfolk and Suffolk. And then they use those horses that they've obtained from him to go into the Midlands of England, into the Kingdom of Mercia. And that's where they really carry out their main raiding in the late 860s. So they go up uh, north in the 860s, and then at one point they move south again and they come back to East Anglia. And that's really where we see the end of Edmund and where really what he becomes best known for is, is his death rather than his life. And uh, can you tell us exactly what happens or what we think happened or what we, from the sources? Well, the great heathen army engages with the uh, the army of the King of Wessex at Nottingham. And it's possible that Edmund was part of that as well. But we don't know that. That's in a much later source. What we do know is that the great heathen army makes its way back to its winter quarters at Thetford through the Midlands, through the East Midlands, burning and looting and committing sacrilege at holy sites and monasteries on the way, including Crowland and Peterborough and Thorny, until they arrive back at their camp at Thetford. And it's at that point, this is in November of 869, that Edmund decides to attack. And the, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is clear that the attack comes from Edmund. It's not from the Vikings themselves. So clearly, in Edmund's view, the Vikings had done something to break that original treaty or agreement. It may well be that it was the sacrilege that triggered Edmund to decide that he was going to break his side of the bargain and attack them. The battle, however, doesn't go in Edmund's favour. And so at the Battle of Thetford, Edmund's army is defeated. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, we have a very simple account, which simply says that the East Anglians were defeated, the Danes had the victory and killed the king. However, we have a much later source, which dates from over a century later, from the 980s, by a monk called Abbo of Fleury. And he claims to derive this from an oral source. He says that it was told to him by Archbishop Dunstan, and Archbishop Dunstan heard it from an old man at the court of King Athelstan, who, of course, was the, the later king of Wessex in the 10th century. And this old man at the court of King Athelstan said that as a young man, he had been the armour bearer to King Edmund and had personally witnessed what happened. And according to this armour bearer's story, Edmund at the Battle of Thetford decided that he wanted to spare his people further slaughter. So he leaves the battle because he knows that the, it's really him that the Danes are after. And he makes his way south to a royal manor, uh, a, a royal house, which is known as Hegelsdun. We don't know exactly where that was. And there he waits for the Danes to arrive. 
Now, at this point, the two Danish leaders, Hingwar and Hubber, as they're called in this source, uh, they still want Edmund to carry on ruling as a sort of puppet king. And so they ask him, will you be king under us? And Edmund says, well, only if you convert to Christianity. And they refuse. And so at that point, Edmund is, is bound, he's scourged, then he's bound to a tree. The Danish archers use him as target practice. At that point, he's still alive. And so he's cut loose from the tree and he's beheaded. And so that's how Edmund meets his death. But there are further indignities in store for him. His head is taken by the Danes and thrown into the undergrowth of the surrounding forest, presumably as a form of desecration of the body so that it's not possible for the body to be buried in its entirety. And so this is a pretty gruesome end to this king. How reliable do you think that account is? There's been a lot of different opinions on the reliability of this source. It is a pretty late source. But then on the other hand, it does have this oral testimony within it. And the, the lineage of that oral testimony is described. And so I think what we've got in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is an account from a scribe writing in Wessex, who wasn't really interested in East Anglian affairs. But we do have that um, chronology within the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that the Danes were victorious and then they killed the king. Whereas what you'd normally expect if the king were killed in battle, you would simply say that, you know, the king was killed and the Danes were victorious because normally the, the victory would happen as a result of the killing of the king. So that suggests that the killing of the king was a separate event. And then we have, I think, the basic credibility of this account resting on the fact that it's passed on by Archbishop Dunstan to Abbo of Fleury. But Abbo of Fleury was also preparing the account for Archbishop Dunstan. And clearly, if Abbo Fleury was taking uh, liberties with this account, he wouldn't want to contradict what Dunstan himself had said. And I don't see any particularly compelling reason to doubt what Dunstan is saying. So I think really, we're relying on the truthfulness of this armour bearer, if indeed the armour bearer existed. It's impossible to say, but I would say that there's a, a reasonable likelihood about 50-50 that this is probably an account that gives the general gist of how Edmund died. And so, yeah, I think we can probably trust it to some extent. Great. Now, that's not necessarily the most remarkable part of the story, though, is it? Because something else happens to his body afterwards, and this is really what propels him to fame. So can you explain what actually happens his, his body after he's been killed uh, by the Vikings? Well, this is where the story veers into the miraculous and the realms of legend, because what we have is an account of how shortly after Edmund's martyrdom, some of his followers, some of the East Anglians, are searching for the king's head. They've got his body because it's simply been abandoned by the Danes where he was killed. But they realise that the Danes have, have thrown away the head and they're looking through the undergrowth. And it's at this point that they hear a voice shouting, here, 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 three times. And they follow the sound of the voice and they find in a clearing in the wood an enormous wolf holding between its paws the severed head of King Edmund, which is also incorrupt. It hasn't decayed since the, the time of the king's death. And so they take the head back to the body. The wolf follows. It suddenly become miraculously tame. And when they reach the king's body, they put the head and the body back together and they miraculously join, leaving only a thin red crease showing where the king had been beheaded. And the whole body of the king from that moment on is incorrupt, according to legend. And so the king is then buried on the site where he was martyred and a little wooden chapel is erected on that site. 
And that's how it remains for a number of years. But then after that point, because the number of pilgrims to the little chapel in the woods has become so great, the king's body is removed to a nearby town, Beodricksworth, which in the course of time becomes known as the Burg of St Edmund, Bury St Edmunds. It's a misconception a lot of people have that Bury St Edmunds, the Bury bit, it's about Edmund being buried there, but actually it's from the Old English word Burg, meaning a town, a, a fortified settlement. So he's taken to the Church of St Mary, uh, which is still there in Bury St Edmunds, although at that time it was a previous wooden structure. And there a shrine is established, and that shrine is served by a woman called Oswin, who cuts the hair and nails of the martyr that continue to grow, and by a, a group of secular canons, you know, priests who run that shrine. It's not at that stage a monastery. Now, what's quite important to understand here in terms of what happens next is that this part of the country becomes part of what's later known as the Dane law. And in fact, the very Scandinavians who are essentially the descendants of that great army and the sort of later generations, they become really quite instrumental in what becomes quite a, a significant cult. So can you tell us a little bit about how that comes about? How come Scandinavians become interested in somebody they essentially murdered themselves? Yes, that's right. The The cult is essentially part of the culture of Dane law, East Anglia. The, the Danes are victorious. They establish a kingdom of their own uh, under Guthrum, who later makes an agreement with King Alfred and establishes the, the division of England between the, the English and the Danes. And so we have the development of a, a kind of composite Anglo-Danish culture within East Anglia, uh, just as much as you find in York uh, and in the Northeast. It's during this period, during this Danelaw period, that the cult of St Edmund begins. And the first signs we have of this in the archaeological record are the appearance of a remarkable set of coins that are minted in East Anglia, but also find their way as far north as York to the, the really the, the, the capital of the, the Danish kingdom. And they are mimicking, they are replicas of coins that Edmund had minted in his own lifetime. And they have on them an invocation, Sancte Edmunde Rex, O St Edmund the King. And these appear in around 890. So that's less than 20 years, potentially, after Edmund has, has been killed. And that's an indication that Edmund has already been acclaimed as a saint. Now, at that time, being acclaimed as a saint usually meant that your body had been translated, a, a saint's body had been taken out of the ground and moved into a, a shrine, which was known as translation. There wasn't at that stage a formal procedure of canonization where the Pope would declare somebody a saint or anything like that. And so it may well be that Edmund was translated in around the year 890 to Bury St Edmunds, or it's possible that it took place in the early 10th century. But either way, it takes place long before the reconquest of the Dane law in 917 with the Battle of Tempsford when the Danes are defeated and, and that area is, is reabsorbed back into England under the rule of the House of Wessex. So it is part of that um, Anglo-Danish culture and the most striking example that we have of a Scandinavian ruler paying honour to St Edmund takes place in the 11th century when Canute, who is the, the son of King Swain of Denmark, who is supposedly killed by the ghost of St Edmund, that Canute decides that he will found a great Benedictine abbey 
at Bury St Edmunds, staffed by monks rather than the, the priests who'd previously been looking after the shrine. And that takes place in 1020. And in fact, it's founded on the day commemorating Canute's victory at the Battle of Assendoon, which is when he defeats the English and establishes himself as Danish King of England. So uh, it does seem that the, the cult of St Edmund is very much bound up with Danish as well as English identity. And this isn't altogether uncommon, although it sounds really strange that the people who killed a saint would actually be venerating that saint. It's not unprecedented. And there are cases where people would, would see it as part of their Christian story. The fact that it was predestined, that they were destined to make this martyr. And by the making of that martyr, they have advanced the Christian faith in their country. We find that in, in Scandinavia, in Sweden, in, in, in Norway, we find similar kind of stories. And so it seems weird to us, perhaps, but less weird to medieval people. There's even churches in Norway dedicated to St. Edmund in the medieval period, and he's, he's mentioned in sagas and so on, I think. So that's a really fascinating part. But then this idea of having a patron saint then, so he starts out quite locally, doesn't he? But quite quickly, uh, his importance becomes spread throughout uh, the country and eventually also internationally. What's the first we hear of him as a, as a sort of patron saint of the country? Well, the first indication we have is that Athelstan, King of Wessex, who, who becomes uh, known as King of England, he names one of his sons, Edmund. Uh, now, it's possible that that's simply a family name within the House of Wessex, but it's also possible that it is a tribute to the martyr. And the evidence to support that is that when Edmund becomes king as Edmund I of England, that's to say, he does give his patronage specifically to Bury St Edmunds. And in 945, there's a charter which did exist, although it was later much elaborated and developed. This, this often happened in the 10th century and the 11th century that you would have charters being elaborated from their original. But there certainly was a real charter of King Edmund. And that's an indication that the House of Wessex regarded Edmund as a royal saint. And then that's the beginning of a series of instances of royal patronage that really carry on right down to Henry VIII, that every English king, with very few exceptions, showed great honour to St Edmund, to the point where making a pilgrimage to St Edmund's shrine was a rite of passage once a king was crowned. And I think also once you have the Normans, the Normans really make use of Edmund as a way of legitimising their rule. And so we have William the Conqueror paying great honour to Edmund, uh, Richard the Lionheart particularly is interested in Edmund, perhaps because he is perceived by many of his subjects as being a foreigner. He's somebody who also sees Edmund as a way of legitimating his English credentials. And so Edmund becomes the symbol of Englishness. And I think the reason for this is that Edmund's title, his Latin title, and that's on his own coins, and the way that he's known in the liturgy is as Rex Anglorum. Now, that can be translated as King of the Angles, which, of course, Edmund was. He was King of the East Angles. But, of course, it can also be translated as King of the English. And so we have very early on the development of this antiphon, this special hymn sung in Edmund's honour, Ave Rex Gentis Anglorum, Hail, King of the English, or King of the Angles, but it's always interpreted as King of the English. And so he becomes this explicitly English saint. And even in the liturgy in honour of St Edmund, England and Englishness are to the fore. So he becomes, certainly by the end of the 11th century, partly down to the campaigning of the abbot of Bury St Edmunds, Baldwin, 
He is recognized in a number of different places by foreigners as the patron of the whole English people he's described as. So yeah, he's the first saint who ever receives that kind of recognition. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers and over on the Warfare Podcast, we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics... Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected. And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never-ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. I wanted to get back a little bit to his body and his remains and and that story, because that's a a really fascinating part of it that uh, you've been part of as well, as we'll get back to in a moment. And one thing I was struck by when I was reading uh, your book was this idea of his fame spreading uh, throughout uh, different places and different countries. And you made the point that very often when these saints' cults spread around, they are uh, literally being moved around by their relics, parts of their relics or parts of their bones being taken to other places. So you could have a finger bone or a, uh, or a leg or something in whatever church. But as you were saying earlier, when Edmund's body was discovered, his body was complete. And of course, that means that there would be no bones to, to take out and separate because that's part of the point there. So one abbot then was able to come up with a solution to that, to sort of spread his, his sort of fame around. Uh, what exactly was that? So this was, again, Abbot Baldwin. This was a, a French abbot who was appointed before the Norman Conquest. He was the only French abbot in England at that time. And because of that, he actually escaped being replaced at the Norman Conquest. So Baldwin was uniquely placed to advance the cult of St. Edmund with Norman patronage. And what he does is he takes a collection of bloodstained clothing that had been removed from the body of St. Edmund by his predecessor, Abbot Leofstan, and uses that to create what are known as contact relics. Contact relics are essentially pieces of cloth, maybe clothing, items that were owned by a saint that had been in contact with the saint's body. It might include things that are stained with blood. And so he cuts those up and sends them around Europe. And he does that by 
going on the, the standard pilgrim route that goes through France, through into the south of France, into Italy, to the city of Lucca, which is a great pilgrimage centre, and then on to Rome itself. And we know, for example, that Baldwin leaves a relic of St Edmund at, at Lucca. We know that he spreads relics throughout various places in France. And so, yeah, we've got the spread of his cult as far afield as Damietta in Egypt, where crusaders presumably take some sort of relic of St Edmund. We also have the spread of Edmund's cult into Ireland. There's a, a miraculous statue of St Edmund in Ireland. We don't know whether there are any relics. There might have been. There's a supposed relic of St Edmund in Norwich, uh, at St Edmund's Church in Norwich. We have another shrine of St Edmund in Norfolk at a place called Ling. We have cults of St Edmund in Thetford. And of course, there's also, as you've already mentioned, there's a cult of St. Edmund in Scandinavia. So we've got great popularity of St. Edmund in Iceland. We've got in Norway, right next to the city of Oslo, there's a, a monastery called Hervedoya, which is on an island near to the city of Oslo that's dedicated to St. Edmund. In Sweden also, we have the spread of, of dedications to Edmund. So yes, throughout Northern Europe, and also Western Europe, we have the spread of this cult, although at slightly different times and for slightly different reasons. OK, so let's go back to his actual body then and his remains and what happens to them. So there are a few written records going up to the 12th century. Could you talk us through some of those, uh, what we know about his actual physical remains? There's first of all a, a document called The Life and Miracles of St Edmund by Herman the Archdeacon, and that describes some of the things that took place in the early days. So we have the, the body of St. Edmund in the very early days, lying in the church of St. Mary in Bury and being cared for by this woman called Oswin. Then we have the construction of a, a, a more permanent kind of monastery and a, a rotunda chapel, a round chapel is created to house Edmund's body, which was modelled really on the mausoleum of Charlemagne at Aachen, which in turn was modelled on the mausoleum of, of Constantine in, in Byzantium, the, the, in the Church of the Holy Apostles. So this is really a very sort of imperial kind of way to honour Edmund's body. And his body is, is, is placed there and perhaps displayed to pilgrims, though we don't really know how often that took place. And it's not really until the end of the 11th century that we get the body being moved to a great abbey church, a great Norman abbey church that's been constructed by Baldwin. And at that point, a formal translation takes place. The body is put on display to the faithful. There's a story of a sacrist called Tolly who shows insufficient respect for the body. And as a result of that, St Edmund punishes him when a piece of masonry falls down from the building site and knocks him on the head and kills him. Edmund is a very vengeful saint. He's always killing people who disrespect him in any way. And that really is the, the, the last time that Edmund's body is seen until... In 1198, a serious fire occurs in the presbytery of the Great Abbey Church. And this is during the reign of Abbot Samson, probably the best known of Berry's abbots, because there's a very vivid account of his reign by Jocelyn de Brakeland, which has been translated into English several times and is, is, is widely read. But yeah, one incident that takes place is we have a nighttime fire because the, the shrine attendants have been inattentive and have left pilgrims' candles alight. And it's, uh, it's caught light to part of the, essentially, the, the beer of St. Edmund that's part of the shrine. And so Abbot Samson has to check whether the body of St. Edmund is, is, is still intact and hasn't been burnt. And so there's a detailed description by Jocelyn de Brakeland of how the, the, the coffin is opened and the, the body is inspected. 
And that's the last time that the body of St Edmund is seen. Another severe fire takes place in 1465 that nearly completely destroys the, the, the Abbey Church. But what happens during that fire is that the stone lid that's held by ropes above the shrine, the fire burns through the ropes and the stone lid slams shut before it's possible for the fire to get to the body of St Edmund. So that gives some protection. So we don't really know what the state of the body of St Edmund was by the time of the dissolution in 1539. So at that point then, what happened? Because after some point uh, after these records uh, were made, his remains are essentially lost to us and we don't know what happens. Uh, but then he also seems to turn up uh, in France, according to one account, which you believe is, is not uh, not right. So what happens there? Why would he be in France? This is a, a curious tradition at the Basilica of Saint-Sernin in Toulouse in the south of France. From the middle of the 15th century, we find records that they believed that they were in possession of the body of St. Edmund, or uh, various garbled names, uh, Amond, King of England, who turns into Edmund, King of England, and is established eventually in, in the Toulouse legend as being Edmund. My own interpretation of what was going on here is that it was similar to what happened at Lucca. We know that Baldwin left a contact relic at Lucca, and by the 12th century, that was interpreted as St. Edmund's head. And this is what's called relic inflation, where a, a church is in possession of a small relic or a contact relic. But over time, it's in the interests of the relic keepers to exaggerate the status of the relics that the, the church has. And so it may well be that Toulouse was in possession of some kind of very minor relic of St. Edmund. But over time, it becomes inflated due to laziness or due to the marketing, if you like, of the of the, the relic keepers, that it becomes inflated into the entire body of St. Edmund. But what then happens in the 17th century is that a, a plague takes place in Toulouse and someone decides to invoke the patronage of St. Edmund, just in case, because it's worth trying anything in a plague. And it turns out that after the patronage of St. Edmund is invoked, the plague ceases. And so the entire city of Toulouse decides that St. Edmund is its heavenly patron and that the body of St. Edmund needs to be translated into a splendid new shrine and that a life of St. Edmund must be written. And so this is given to a lawyer by the name of Pierre de Cazeneuve, this task of writing a life of St. Edmund. And so Cazeneuve comes up with this theory. Oh, I know how this could have got here. The Dauphin of France, who later became Louis VIII, was in East Anglia in 1216, this is at the time of the Baron's War after King John has refused to ratify Magna Carta and so the Barons have joined forces with the French and they're attempting to depose John and install the Dauphin of France as King of England. And we know that at this time there was a French raid on Bury St Edmunds. And so Cazeneuve says, well, clearly, yeah, this must be the moment when Louis took the body of St. Edmund and brought it to France because Louis then went to Toulouse in order to wage a crusade against the Cathars. Now, there's absolutely no evidence that this is true. It was just a rather clever piece of historical speculation by Pierre de Cazeneuve. But there have been various people at various times who've taken it quite seriously, this story. But it's, yeah, in my view, it's clearly not true. We would have some account from England, from a Berry source, from an English source, of a, a, you know, a serious French attack on Berry in which the abbey was raided and the body was taken. We, we don't have, you know, we don't have any account of that sort. So no, that didn't happen. What we think did happen, what I think did happen, 
is that at the dissolution, the body that was in the shrine, whether or not it was St. Edmund, we just don't know, but whatever relics were in that shrine were taken and hidden by the monks of Bury. And we have an account that dates from the late 17th century, but a bit like that original account by Abbo of Fleury of the death of St. Edmund, it's something that was written over a century after what happened, but is based on a chain of oral evidence. And there was a man called William Hitchcock, who was prior of a, a monastery dedicated to St. Edmund, a Benedictine monastery of English monks in Paris. And Hitchcock said, my great grandfather was a monk of Barry St. Edmund's. And of course, that was perfectly possible because the monks went on to, many of them went on to get married and have children after they stopped being monks after the dissolution. So my great-grandfather was a monk of Barry St. Edmund's, and he and the other monks took the body of St. Edmund and put it in an iron chest and hid it, buried it somewhere. And that was all that Hitchcock could remember, because the chronicler who was describing this said, oh, I need to get back to Father Hitchcock and ask him to give me a bit more detail about this fascinating story. But by the time he got back to Hitchcock, he was dead because he was very, very aged at this point. And so that's all we have. We have this story from the 17th century of the body of St. Edmund being hidden in an iron chest, no indication of where that might have been. And so the real puzzle that I've been grappling with is what that really has to tell us about where the body of St. Edmund might be. And you think that it didn't actually move very far from its original location, don't you? So, so tell us where you think he might be buried. Well, I think all we have to go on really is, is common sense. And given that we know that the body was put in an enormous iron chest, it would have been extremely heavy and difficult to move. My own view is that the iron chest was probably one of the muniment chests from the cloisters or the sacristy. We know that there were great big iron muniment chests. And I think what might have happened is that the, the shrine was opened, the coffin of the saint was removed, and then the wooden coffin, which at that time would have been in an advanced state of deterioration because it was an Anglo-Saxon coffin, would have been placed in one of those muniment chests. Now, at that point, you have to ask how far could they have realistically moved that iron chest? What we do know is that the monks were under lockdown in the monastery. They couldn't leave the monastic precincts. There was an outbreak of plague. But also, since 1538, they'd been forbidden by the king's commissioners to leave the monastery because the monastery was already doomed at that point. It was being prepared for dissolution. So given that they couldn't leave the precinct and they couldn't go very far from the presbytery, it makes sense that they would have taken it out of the abbey church and the nearest place that they could have discreetly buried that chest is the monk's cemetery. Because there was an outbreak of plague, lots of monks were dying and were being buried in that private cemetery. And that was located behind the east end of the Abbey Church. And that's where, much later, a set of tennis courts were erected by the Marquis of Bristol. And it wasn't until spring 2020 that those tennis courts were finally removed. And so now that area is a nice little grassed over, uh, raised area at the east end of the Abbey Church. And that's where I believe is the most promising place that it would be a good idea to look for St Edmund. So we might have a lost king under a former tennis court, uh, which is a very intriguing prospect. So, And there's not really been any archaeological investigations of that part of the abbey, has there? I mean, I, I know there have been some in uh, the, the crypt of the abbey. Nobody found any suitable burials that could be Edmund, I, I believe. But the actual monk cemetery has, has never been investigated. Is that right? That's correct. And I mean, a large part of archaeology is finding out that the answer is no. And one of the great things that we have at Bury is that the crypt 
and the Abbey Church have been excavated and investigated. And it was M.R. James, the, the great uh, archaeologist and, and writer of ghost stories, who usually had a pretty good instinct on these things. And he said, oh, I think that the body of St. Edmund is probably in the crypt. And he died before he had a chance to investigate that. But it was investigated between 1959 and 1964, and nothing was found. So therefore, that's been eliminated as a possibility. So that really leaves another place that is very close to that East End. And that would be, in my view, the Monk Cemetery. It's not the only possible site, but it certainly would be at the, poss at the top of my list. And I think the other great thing that we've got in our favour when it comes to the possibility of finding Edmund is that we have certain diagnostic signs that we could look for to determine whether this is Edmund's burial or just another monastic burial. And that, of course, is that we've got a burial in an iron chest. And even if that iron chest is completely degraded, you would expect some sign in the soil that such a thing had been buried. The other diagnostic piece of evidence that we may well have, if it is the case that the entire coffin of Edmund was placed in that iron chest, which I think is very likely, a similar sort of thing took place with the body of St. Cuthbert. The entire coffin was taken out of the shrine and reburied. And it's just very, very difficult to remove a body from a coffin, you know, when it's when it's so ancient, it's much easier to just take the whole coffin out. If that coffin was taken out and reburied, then in that coffin would be any objects that we know from other sources were in that coffin throughout the Middle Ages. And one of those objects was a gold a figure of the Archangel Michael, which was set as a protection over the body of St. Edmund. Now, gold, of course, does not degrade. So therefore, if we have some of those grave goods, then that would provide unambiguous evidence that this is the burial of St. Edmund. So it's not like Richard III. We don't need DNA evidence to prove that it's Edmund. We wouldn't know what that would be anyway. But we do have these potential pieces of evidence to look for that might help us to identify whether this is an unusual kind of burial. Well, that sounds very promising to me. Uh, and as you very rightly point out, it would be very, even if, if we did want to do something like DNA analysis, we wouldn't have anything to, to compare it to. We don't have any known descendants. So, so actually to use the science for that would be very difficult. But I think one of the exciting prospects here is, is using something like geophysics. So using a radar survey or magnetometry survey, if we really do have that big burial with an iron coffin, then that should be possible to, to pick up. So so I'm, I'm quite excited about this prospect. I know there's been some ideas of, of trying to get this off the ground and, and hopefully we will see something come out of it. I definitely would love for you and I to go out there and, uh, and, and do some surveys and have a look. If we did find him and if we could somehow prove at least you know uh, beyond reasonable doubt that this might be the bones or the relics of St Edmund, what would that actually mean uh, today and what, why would that matter to anyone in 2021? I think it would be a national event of enormous significance to actually find the body not only of a king who was you know so important to english royalty throughout history but also to find the body of a patron saint of england even if he might not be known today to everyone as the patron saint of england i think it would be a defining moment for english national identity brilliant well Definitely. If anything happens, we will uh, report back and, and let everyone know. I hope we will be possible to do some of these geophysical surveys, at least. So if there are any developments in the search, we will definitely keep you updated. 
But Francis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Don't forget that if you want to hear more about this story and there's a lot more detail that we haven't been able to cover today, uh, do take a look at Francis's book, Edmund in Search of England's Lost King. I can highly recommend it. And uh, you can also follow uh, Francis. He's on Twitter. So just search for his name there, Francis Young, and uh, you can find more. And thank you so much again for coming on the podcast so if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today subscribe so if you haven't already and please tell your friends family colleagues and even the postman to do the same to help us spread the word and you can leave us a review if you want to as well i'm dr kat german and i will be back next week on gone medieval from history hit thank you for listening to this episode of gone medieval please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts it really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favor Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.